Friends, let's open in our Bibles to the book of Hebrews. We're starting a brand new study and a brand new book. We're leaving Samuel. We're entering Hebrews. We at CPC are firm believers in the table of contents. If you want to look up where Hebrews is, it's smack dab in the middle of the New Testament. If you hit Revelation, you've gone too far. But we're going to be here. We're going to dwell here for a little while. Uh, This morning, I'm going to read the first four verses, which in the Greek in which it was originally written is actually just one sentence. And I think it's one of the most beautiful sentences in all scripture or literature put together. I'm going to read it for us this morning. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Hear now God's word. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Let's pray together. Jesus, would you give us a bigger picture of yourself Would you use your word, would you use this time together to allow us to see that you are the radiance of God the Father, that you are his glory, it proceeds from you, and that you are worthy of our worship. Would you show us that this morning, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're starting a new book, and anytime we do that, anytime we crack open the first page, whether in our personal study or whether we're here together on Sunday morning for a sermon, you've got to ask some investigative questions. You're jumping in to the middle of a history. Something's already happened. There are people who are now receiving communication from another person, and it will help us understand this book if we can ask, who's writing this? When has it been written? What are they writing about? These questions are going to help form the picture in our mind, give us a lay of the land, and will understand the book so much better. So let's ask these, and they'll give us import for our passage. Who wrote the book of Hebrews and to whom? Well, as we ask these questions, we're going to start very vaguely, and we'll get on firmer ground, because we don't actually know who wrote the book of Hebrews. That's a mystery to us. I could spend the next hour sharing with you all the theories about who might have written it, but we simply do not know who wrote this book. We also don't know who it was written to. We can speculate there. There's a case to be made that this might be the house church that meets in Rome. These are believers that are gathered in a home. They, at least some of them have a Jewish background and they're receiving this letter. When we ask the question when it's been written, we get on a little bit firmer ground because somebody actually quotes the book of Hebrews at the very end of the first century. So that begins to give us a window when this book was written. We know that Jesus died on the cross, rose again from the dead in the early AD 30s, and now we see this book being quoted in the mid-90s AD, and so that gives us a framework. But then we also hear referred to in this passage persecution that's happening to Christians that has not yet led to the shedding of blood. Now, we know Nero is going to create an incredible persecution in which he will shed blood, and that happens in AD 60, and so all of a sudden we can kind of presume that that hasn't happened yet because he's not writing about that yet, and we move this window to within 30 years. 
between the time that Jesus rose from the dead and the time of the book of Hebrews has been written is somewhere in that 30-year window. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, 30 years sounds like a long amount of time, uh, I want to remind you, this isn't a blog post. I mean, this isn't a knee-jerk reaction to the resurrection. This kind of thing is a Christological masterpiece. It takes time. It takes time for the church in Rome to actually hear the gospel for the first time and convert and walk in faith and suffer. It takes time for the author of Hebrews to read and reread and reread his scriptures through the lens of Jesus. It takes time for this to develop, and this might be happening within 10 or 20 or 30 years of the resurrection. We get on real firm ground when we ask the question, what do we have here? We don't exactly know if it's a letter or a sermon. It has features of both, but the message is very clear, and this is the message of Hebrews. To encourage suffering Christians to persevere in their faith by proclaiming the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus. Now, that's a mouthful, but this is a 13-chapter letter, and it takes a lot of complexity to unpack. But it's to encourage Christians who suffer to persevere in the faith by proclaiming the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus. We meet suffering of believers with the supremacy and the sufficiency of who Jesus is. That's the message. That's the balm that's being applied to the suffering that's happening perhaps in Rome to this house church. Now, when we understand why this is being written and what the message is and who might be receiving it, it helps uh, show us how profound and relevant the book of Hebrews is to us where we sit so many years later. We at Columbia Presbyterian Church, we make much of the fact that our mission in this church is to make disciples who make disciples. We do that in a church that plants churches. We're all about making disciples. Now, I want you to just take a moment wherever you are and to look at the people next to you. You don't have to introduce yourself. Just get a lay of the land. See who's to the left, who's to the right, who's in front of you, who's behind you. When we say that our mission is to make disciples who make disciples, we simply mean that every single person in this room who is attached to this church has a responsibility to make sure this person sitting next to them knows Jesus and is moving towards Jesus. That's your responsibility. That's the responsibility of every single person in this church. You don't need a title to do that. You don't need a classroom to do that. You don't need a line item in the budget to do that. As a Christian and as a member of this church, that's immediately your calling and your responsibility to take part of. So if your coworker or your neighbor or your two-year-old or the person sitting behind you doesn't know Jesus, you tell them who Jesus is. When you come on Sunday morning and hang out in the coffee time or here in the worship service or you go to life group, you don't hold back and wait for the extrovert to introduce themselves to you. You move forward and introduce yourself to each other because we all have the responsibility to push each other towards Jesus. Never ever assume that if somebody is in this room, they're already a believer and they're probably moving towards Jesus. That's the worst thing we can do as a church. We get alongside of each other and we get to know each other. When you have people sitting across the lunch table from you, you hang out with them on a play date, you have somebody over for dinner, we laugh, we have fun together, but we ask important questions about life and faith because I have a responsibility to the person sitting across from me to learn, are they moving towards Jesus or away from Jesus? 
Now, we all know that in this process of mutual discipleship with one another, we ourselves and our friends get stuck. We suffer, we experience pain, we get caught up in sin, and we find ourselves not moving towards Jesus. We're stuck and we're drifting away from him. And if we can't answer the question, what do we do in that situation, we can't do our job. If I'm here to mutually disciple the people around me and I don't know what to do the umpteenth time that my friend is stuck, I don't know how to do what God is calling me to do. That makes the book of Hebrews imminently relevant to where we are and what our calling is as a church. Look at what the writer of the Hebrews does because he shares this exact same vision with us and he's asking this exact same question. When he sees a church that is suffering, that is doubting, that is sinning, this is what he does. He gives them a bigger picture of Jesus than the one they had before. The writer to the Hebrews, in this opening line, he gives us eight things about Jesus to marvel in. These are eight truths about who Jesus is that gives us a bigger picture of him than the one we had before. Now, we could take those eight things and we could simply categorize them into the three offices of Jesus. We've talked about this before. Jesus holds the office of prophet, priest, and king, and we could understand these eight things in those three offices. Now, the reason that's so helpful for us is because I think we all get in a rut talking about Jesus, right? We're sitting with somebody, we're like the kid in Sunday school class who knows that the answer is Jesus, I just don't know how to make it interesting, and the person sitting across from me has already heard me tell them that Jesus died on the cross for their sins, and they've already heard the three verses I know. How do I give them a bigger picture of Jesus if I myself don't have a bigger picture of Jesus? The three offices of Jesus give us something to talk about. They give us something to grow in our minds about Christ. They give us something to share with another person. Here's an example. If in my struggle, do I need to hear that Jesus is a new and better priest? We read in verse 3 that after making purification for sins, he sat down. If Jesus has sat down, that means he's finished. That means it's done. If as far as Jesus is concerned, I've been purified, why do I not feel that? Why am I carrying around this vague sense of guilt if Jesus says it's done? Why am I striving for approval when Jesus is sitting in completion? Thinking about Jesus as a priest begins to answer that question. Or, in my struggle, do I need to hear that Jesus is the new and better king? That he is the one who is described as the creator and sustainer and the inheritor of all things. Our passage says that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. What's missing there if Jesus is holding the entire universe? What what am I grasping onto so hard that I think that King Jesus is dropping? If Jesus can hold the Milky Way in his hands, can he hold my marriage? Can he hold my family? Can he hold my faith? Can he hold the struggles that I'm dealing with right now? Jesus, as a new and a better king, it expands our vision of who he is. Do you see how these offices, thinking about Jesus in these ways, gives us this bigger picture and allows us to apply personally something about Jesus to the person that we're talking with? 
I just want to very briefly, in the next couple of minutes, focus on the third office, Jesus as a prophet. That's where the writer to the Hebrews spends most of his time right now. And I just want to show us in these few verses how the writer to the Hebrews, he gives a triple testimony to the fact that Jesus is a new and a better prophet. Here's what he says. Number one, Jesus is the revelation of God in his speaking. This is what we read right off the bat in verse one. Long ago, in many times, and in many ways, God spoke to us by our fathers through the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. The writer immediately divides our world into two eras. We had this time in the past, like we read in 1 Samuel, where God spoke through the prophets, but now in these latter days, in other words, in this new definitive time, he has spoken through his son. His son is the final word of the father. I love that scene at the end of Luke where the crowds are gathering before Jesus. He's teaching. The religious teachers are jealous. They're seeking for a way to destroy him, but they can't do it. Why? Because the people are hanging on the words of Jesus, Luke says. What does it mean to approach this new and better prophet and to hang on the very words of Jesus? He is the definitive word of God. There will be no new revelation after Jesus. Well, number two, not only is he the revelation of God in speaking, but he's the revelation of God in radiating and reflecting. This is what we read in verse three. He is the radiance of the glory of God. There's a little ambiguity in the Greek because radiance could mean two things. It could mean he's the source of something or it could mean he's the reflection of something. In other words, is he producing this glory or is this glory kind of bouncing off of him and he's showing it to the world? And the answer is he's doing both of those things. Jesus is both the source of glory and he is the reflection of his father's glory. And in that respect, Jesus is like both the moon and the sun. Jesus is like the moon because the light comes from a different source and it reflects off of him and he shows it to the world. You are seeing the father in Jesus But he's also like the sun because he produces his own glory. He is the light, the shining light that comes into the darkness. That's only something that could possibly be said of God himself, that he produces glory within himself to show to us. To put it as densely as I can, I would say that Jesus shows who God is and God is who Jesus shows. Whatever Jesus is doing, he's showing us what his father is like, and whatever Jesus does, his father is also like, because Jesus produces the very glory of God. There was a a book of wisdom written around the same time as the book of Hebrews, and it has this line in it that so applies to Jesus. I love this with respect to Jesus reflecting God's glory. Jesus is the unspotted mirror of the working of God. When you see Jesus you see without any interruption the glory of God himself in his son. Third and finally, he's the revelation of God as the exact imprint. Now, the writer to the Hebrews says this in verse three, and this is unique to him. He says, he is the exact imprint of his nature. A couple of other places in the New Testament, you have the line that Jesus is the image of God. He shows us the image of God, but only in Hebrews do you have this line in which he is the exact imprint of God, and that is the language he's borrowing from coin making. You think about how you would make a coin in first century Roman Empire, 
And it's kind of a complicated process in which a master engraver, he has to create the stamps called dies. He's got to make one for the bottom of the coin and one for the top of the coin. And so he engraves these things. And then you get a team of people who heat up a a blank piece of metal and they put it on the stamp and they put the top stamp on top and they hit it with a mallet. And what comes out is this perfect, exact imprint of what has been engraved on the die. That's exactly the language the writer to the Hebrews is saying. When you see Jesus, you are seeing an exact imprint of the Father himself. Jesus is the new and better prophet. Jesus is the revelation of God in what he says, in what he reflects, in what he radiates, and in his very nature. Jesus is the new and better prophet. You see Jesus, you see the Father. You hear Jesus, you're hearing the Father. You worship Jesus, you are worshiping the Father. Because this is true, we all, every single human being, now has access to the one true God. Because Jesus has made him known, because he has spoken the definitive word, every single one of us, we have access to the Father. Now there's a a form of thinking today which is uh, dubbed agnosticism. Agnosticism is different from atheism. Atheism would say, there is no God, we can't know God because he's not there. Agnosticism would say, we don't know. We don't know if there's a God, and we don't know if this God is knowable. And there's a way in which you hear that articulated, and it could sound like humility. I'm simply saying, there's no definitive way to say whether we know God. I don't want to emphatically say what he has or hasn't said. I don't want to presume on God. We can't know him. We can't understand him. It kind of sounds like humility, right, to say that we can't know God. But actually, agnosticism is the very height of pride itself. God has humbled himself in his son to be knowable, to teach us, and man exalts himself to be unteachable. That is the very nature of pride itself. In the incarnation, God has taken the cookies of divine revelation and he has put them on the bottom shelf and it takes a special kind of presumption to say, I don't eat cookies. This is here for us to understand and to know the person of Jesus. Well, I just want to close with a word of application. How do we take these dense, glorious thoughts about who Jesus is, how he's the new and better prophet, and begin to apply them to ourselves and to our church? We said that the message of the Hebrews, it takes the balm of this bigger picture of Jesus and it applies it to those who suffer, to those who sin, to those who doubt. We know that as believers, that's going to happen to us and that's going to happen to the person sitting next to us. We're going to, we're going to falter. We're going to get stuck. We're going to give up and begin to drift away from Jesus rather than running towards him. And there are going to be very acute moments in which we don't feel like we're hearing from God. I don't hear his voice. I don't know if that's him speaking to me. I even open up my Bible and I don't know if God is communicating to my heart. What's so interesting about that temptation that we feel and that dark point in our lives where we don't feel like we're hearing from God is it resonates with the very beginning of our Bible. Can you remember the first thing that Satan says to Eve? Back in the garden, back in Genesis chapter 3, in the temptation, which is also the first recorded conversation of something that is created, talking about the creator. Do you know the very first thing that Satan says? He says this, Did God actually say... 
Did God actually say? Are you hearing him rightly? Did he really speak this? The very first recorded conversation about God in the Bible casts God in doubt. He's something that's objectified, something that's being assessed by us, and at least in the garden, he's found wanting. We can't actually know what he said, and it's confusing what he said. Satan was doing that in the Garden of Eden, and he's doing that to us today. Did God actually say this? Do I actually hear him? Do I know him? Look at what the writer to the Hebrews is doing. Look at him as he approaches this tiny house church of saints, these people who are suffering. They've experienced already extreme persecution. They've been abused. Some of the people in this book have been thrown into prison. They've been looted of their goods. They're on the very precipice of unbelief, and that's familiar territory for every single person in this room. They look over the edge of that cliff, they look down into the abyss of agnosticism, and they say to themselves, it would be way easier to jump than to take up my cross one more day and to follow Jesus. The writer to the Hebrews, he dips his stylus in his ink, he takes a deep breath, and he says, I want to tell you about Jesus. I want to tell you what Jesus is like. I want to tell you the kinds of things that Jesus says. I want to tell you about the power that Jesus holds. I want to tell you about the glory that Jesus radiates from his person. In other words, I want to give you a bigger picture of Jesus than the one you came into the room with. He meets doubt with a new and a better prophet. He meets guilt With a new and a better priest, he meets fear with a new and a better king. I want to tell you about this Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, give us this picture. We plead for you. We beg you that you would expand our vision of yourself through your son. Allow us to know that you have spoken God's word definitively and finally and gloriously in our hearts. Would we believe you and trust you, and would we propel our neighbor to believe you too? We ask in Jesus' name, amen.